Before we jump into the text this morning, I do want to take a second to encourage you. Uh, we do have this hermeneutics class tonight, or we titled it, How Do We Study God's Word? We, we did have a registration for that. That was merely just to see if we needed to have it in the sanctuary or down in our West Institute classroom. That's open to anybody, and we would love to have you be with us. Um, Dr. Coberly is here this morning. He was my hermeneutics professor. Um, I told him he had to stand and give a... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but he's here, and he's excited to be with our church. He's going to be teaching our students all next week. But tonight, this, this quote-unquote class or seminar that we're offering is a simple introduction to how do we study God's Word. Um, I spent, I became a Christian at the age of 17, and I was a youth pastor in, in ministry for almost 20 years before I was ever taught how to actually look at God's Word and be comfortable with being able to present that to other people. Um, I asked one question of the text for almost 20 years, and that was, what does the Bible mean to me? And Dr. Coberly's class really, well, it actually changed my entire life because he came in and, and presented the, the Bible in a way that, that we can actually ask questions of the text that give us confidence to be able to present that to others. So I want to invite people to come tonight. If you lead small groups or Bible studies, or even if you study on your own and you struggle with that conflict, I would encourage you to come. It's not this you know, master's level thing. He's presenting it in a way that we all can look at that and be able to apply that to our life. So I would encourage you to come. That's tonight from six to eight o'clock. Um, I know many of you, it's really, I was thinking a while ago, it's, it's, it's incredible where you have a church and on one side alone, I have my barber, my hermeneutics professor and my boss all in one, and my real estate agent all in one side of the, but I, I love this church and I'm, I'm so thankful to be a part of this community um, my name, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeremy Smith, and, and I work here at the West Institute. Uh, the West Institute's our seminary program that we have right here in this house where we spend one year studying God's Word. And about five years ago, my wife and I moved here to participate in that seminary, and, and it was one of the most incredible years of my life of just encountering God's Word and then living in a community of people challenging me. Um, I have some incredible opportunities with the seminary. I get to travel and speak to students all over the country and tell them about this program. And it's, it's just one of the highlights of my life is being able to work for the West. And I have another role that I do here in the church. And I like to describe it as I think what happened is the church got together and they formed a good old committee and they searched for the most qualified applicant that they could find. And they named me or asked me to be the chaplain for the preschool. I don't know what qualifications I exhibited to, to be asked to, to do that job, but I am the chaplain for our preschool that we have here. They meet two, night, two days a week, and we come in here every Tuesday morning, and I sit right here, and it's funny because I often forget, sorry, that I have 11.45, I need to be in here with my guitar, and I pull the chair out, I pull this back so that we can sing songs, and I hear their little pattering. They, they, they'll stomp on the steps so that they'll remind me because my office is directly below that I'm supposed to be sitting in my seat. And I come in here and I get to lead these little kids in songs and it's one of the great joys that I get to do is to be able to play music with them and teach them about the gospel. One of the songs we've been focusing on this year is Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. When I became a Christian in 1997, that was like the dig. I mean, that was a song, you know, we're all, you know, doing all the hand motions. And so I come in here with the little kids and, and I'm teaching them that song and all the songs that we do are pretty much the choruses. And I teach them the choruses and hand motions and the preschool teachers help me with that. But that song, I teach them that because it's explaining the gospel. He came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to cross my debt to pay from the cross to the grave. grave. And we, we sing it and they do the hand motions and it's super fun. And the thing that I love about these preschool kids is you never know what's gonna come out of their mouth or what they're gonna do. 
Like, absolutely, you have no clue what's going to come from them. This last week, I was sitting there. We were playing Father Abraham, and it's a super repetitive song, and they add on different body parts. And this one girl, just in the middle of the song, gets up and walks right in front of me, and she starts tapping me on the knee, Mr. Jeremy, Mr. Jeremy. I'm thinking in my mind, if I don't stop this, this will never quit. And she's going to sit there and say, Mr. Jeremy, Mr. Jeremy. So I say, yes, how can I help you? She looks at me dead in the eye, and she says, my dad's name is Jeremy. And I'm just thinking, that's, that's awesome. That's amazing. I'm glad you took time out of your day to come tell me that. And if you know anything about kids, everything with kids is contagious. Not only do they carry every germ, every known demand, but they also, if one kid does something, the next kid is going to want to do it. And so sure enough, I start playing Father Abraham. The next kid gets up, comes and starts to tap me on the knee. Mr. Jeremy, Mr. Jeremy, I'm thinking, I don't know if I should answer this kid, if I should just keep playing. It's super distracting. So I stop and I say, yes, how can I help you? And she looks me dead in the eye and she says, I eat a lot of boogers. <laughs> and so I say, okay, kids, no more, no more questions. We're going to keep on singing our songs. And the reason why I bring that up is because the absolute joy and love that comes is something that I haven't really experienced before. I was a youth pastor for a long time. Um, but little kids, just the, the innocent nature in which they come to you and the way that they just appeal to you or talk to you and tug on your shoulder or your, your coat, whatever. It's just incredible for me, and I've loved, loved, loved that experience. Before my wife and I came here, I was a missionary in Central America for almost seven years. And my wife and I served there. We, we worked in a, we did a Spanish ministry. We worked with youth, and we experienced a lot as missionaries. We experienced, you know, everything in the world where we lived would sting you or bug you or give you some type of allergic reaction. You grow fungus all over your body and on the floor in your house, and you just get used to these things. But the thing that I struggled with the most that I was not prepared for, and I think this was because of my innocent nature going to the mission field, was the idolatrous nature of the world that we live in. So where we went, it was really incredible because it was very new agey. It, it, was, it was definitely um, Central America, so they speak Spanish, they're Latinos, but but we lived with a community of people that spoke like 50 different languages from 90-something different countries. It was very multicultural. And what I experienced was they have idol worship that just encompasses their life. And what people have developed is this idea is I'm going to take little pieces from all the little different gods that, that will affirm what I want to be affirmed in my life. And when we were on the mission field, what we saw is people actually liked to hear about the name of Jesus. They loved to hear about this guy because he was someone who was very kind. He was someone who was, quote, unquote, very peaceful. He was loving. And what they would always say to me is that he doesn't judge. And so they would take this small, J little Jesus, and they would put this Jesus on the shelf, and they would say, yeah, we, we, we actually really enjoy Jesus. Now, when, when I moved here to, to Laramie, Wyoming, I, whenever I was doing seminary, I actually started a little small business, and that was doing home inspection. And I started that because I wanted to provide a little bit more for my family, but I enjoy like, welcoming people to Laramie to be maybe one of the first people that they meet is someone who knows the gospel and might share that with them. And, you know, the idolatrous nature on the mission field was overwhelming to me. When I came back here and I started doing this home inspection, I go into people's homes, and I see it's actually really not that different here in the States. I would go into a home. Thankfully, it's not normally the owner, the person that would have what I'm about to describe. It's the one who's buying the house, so it's not super awkward, but... They would have a cross on one wall and they would have a little Buddha on the shelf over here. Because what, what they take from this whole idea of Jesus is the things that they want. Friends, my, my message this morning is about the authority of Christ. We're going to be in the book of John. If you'd like to turn there, the reason why I tell you those stories is because I think 
The reason why that issue exists is a struggle with the actual authority and understanding who Christ is. We're going to be, again, in John chapter 5, and, and I want to in, introduce this book a little bit because Pastor Paul has actually been teaching in the epistles in, in First and Second Timothy, so I want to introduce this. So we have four Gospels. Most of you guys know that. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are the synoptics. I remember that. I don't know if this is correct, but um, because they're similar. So synoptics, similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're not, they don't have the same objective. They don't even have the same authors or the same intent. It's beautiful in the way that they're, they're different, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They're focusing largely on the deity of Christ, but also the historical nature of Christ to present him to people that this is really God in the flesh. When we come to the book of John, what's so incredible about this book is 93% of what is contained in the book of John is original content to the book of John. Whenever he set out to, to be, when he was inspired by God, rather, to, to present this gospel to a Jewish population, he was focusing on the deity of Christ. If you are Jewish in nature, in other words, you have focused your sights on one God. We call him Yahweh, or he calls himself Yahweh. Actually, I am. And this God, if you are going to worship him, you can't actually worship another person that's calling himself God. So in their mind, they were struggling with that. They didn't struggle as much with the historical nature of Christ because he existed in their midst. People didn't deny the fact that he was crucified because people were talking about it and people saw it, people witnessed it. But they struggled with the fact that how can he be deity if we're only allowed and supposed to worship one God? John starts off his book in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This last year at summer camp, that was our theme because Jesus Christ proclaimed himself as being one with God. So John starts off his book. The first part of John is focusing on that, the deity of Christ. In the middle portion of the book, we have John focusing on seven miracles that Jesus did, walking on water, feeding the 5,000, turning the, the water into wine, resurrection of Lazarus, and then ultimately the resurrection of himself. And then kind of towards the end of the book, our Doxa College group focused on this last year is these statements that Jesus made about himself. We call them the I am statements because Jesus was professing truth from himself about who he is, which we, I would call that theology. And he said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the way this book is kind of structured. And where we're going to be in chapter five is going to happen right in the middle of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. Now, if you've ever looked at the book of Genesis, we know that God created the world in seven days, or six days, excuse me. And on the seventh day, he rested. And that is the Sabbath. That is the day of rest where you're not allowed to work, just as God created in six days and rested. Well, Jesus is not only doing a miracle, so proclaiming himself as deity, that's the purpose of those miracles. He's presenting himself in that fashion, but he also broke the law by doing it on the Sabbath. And if you would look at me, we're gonna be in verse 18 all the way through 24. I'm going to read 18 real quick, our immediate context to the story that we're talking about this morning. And it says this, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling himself God, his own father, making himself equal with God. This is what is being put towards Jesus. We are seeking to kill you because you are you are breaking the Sabbath. You are breaking the law that we have been given. That's what they're saying. But then it says but he was even calling himself God, his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, friends, I want you guys to consider this because when we read the Bible, we often just focus on kind of our own little culture that we have. I grew up in West Texas. 
I grew up in a, in a, in a home that didn't profess the gospel, that, that God was not spoke of. So whenever I read these, a lot of times I'm just thinking of my own interactions and my own experiences. And when we look at this, whenever it says that God, his own father, making himself equal with God, we need to consider when John is presenting that, why, did he, why, why was it presented in that fashion? Why were the Jews struggling with that? They were struggling with that because to make yourself equal, to make yourself, I'm sorry, a son of, of the father, to make yourself, pronounce yourself in that fashion is proclaiming that you are equal with the father in the Jewish culture. And actually what this is saying is making himself equal actually means that he is one with God, one in the same, no division. That's what was being put towards Jesus and that's the persecution that he was struggling with. Now, if you guys would, we're going to read 19 through 24, and then we're going to look at it verse by verse. Starting in verse 19, so, Jewish, so, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Remember, these are Jesus' words. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for your scriptures, Lord, that you have protected and maintained, Lord, for us today. Lord, I pray as we come to this scripture and as we consider the authority of your son, God, that we would look into our own life and ask ourselves the question, where does that sit with me, where I am today? God, again, I thank you for this scripture that we believe is 100% inspired by you. We can look into your word and we can trust in it and we can devote our life to it. God, we love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Again, if you remember, the reason why I opened with that story about what I experienced on the mission field and what I believe we experience in this culture is because I think it's often a misunderstanding of who Christ actually said he was or a lack of really wanting to be able to commit yourself to that truth. Let's do this together. We're going to walk 19 all the way through 24 together, and we're going to ask some questions along the way is, where does that fit with me and where I am right here today in this church? So in verse 19, this is Jesus' response to the persecution we just talked about. They were seeking to kill him, not because he was just breaking the law, but because he was making himself one with God, a concept that they struggled with and they felt like was ultimately blasphemy. How can you claim to be one with God when God is only one? Yahweh. And Jesus Christ has been sent by the Father and he is presenting himself. He didn't run away in this opportunity. He didn't deflect the argument and say, actually, no, that's not what I said. He hits it head on and this is what he said. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. The reason why Jesus is presenting it in that way, he says, truly, truly, I always look at that as like a megaphone of saying everyone around listen because I'm about to say something that is important. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son, he starts off by affirming what they are persecuting him for, by claiming that he is the son of God, one with God, equal with God, the same. And he says, 
can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus sets out to say, yes, I am absolutely equal with God, but I am here in the flesh, and I am submitting myself to only do what the will is of the Father. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, he talks about taking himself and, and setting that aside and taking on the form of humanness, flesh, so that he can ultimately be sacrificed for our sins. What he is saying here is, you're absolutely right. I'm doing miracles, and I am claiming that I am God. But I am doing everything under the will of the Father. As we look at who Jesus is, he is claiming ultimate authority because he's God. He's not just healing and doing these miracles so people would be like, wow, this guy's great, let's follow him. And he actually follows that up by, in verse 20 by saying, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus again is setting out by saying that, yes, I am doing the will of the Father and the Father loves me. We're going to look at some scriptures here in a minute that Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. The point of that is we actually know how the Father is loving the Son because Jesus loved us the exact same way, by going to the cross and giving himself up for us. When we look at that verse, he says, for the Father loves the Son and shows himself all that he is doing. Again, he's claiming that I am submitting myself to the Father and I am doing his will. I am presenting myself as being one with God in your very midst. I'm going to suffer for you so that you will understand this God that has created you. But then he says, in greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. In verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. That is an incredible statement to make. Jesus is claiming, we know this from the book of Genesis, from creation, that God is the one who breathes life. Just at his very breath, he spoke everything into existence. Because God is God and in his nature, he also has the ability to take away. That is his right as being God, the creator. And Jesus is claiming, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Again, he's claiming an equality being one. When you consider these things today, where do you sit with these things? When you consider the fact that Jesus isn't just a Jesus that you can take and wear a t-shirt that says, I love you, Jesus, when your life isn't, isn't being directed in that same pattern. He is calling us to live according to him because he came and he took on flesh to be a sacrifice for us. When we look at verses 22, it says, for the, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. When Jesus took on flesh, and lived under all the same temptations that, yeah, he didn't have Facebook and Instagram, he didn't struggle with his cell phone, but he struggled with being persecuted because he was different and because he was making claims that in that culture they were really struggling to understand, but they also didn't want to. Same as people do today. People will hear the truth. Maybe that's even you. You'll hear the truth today and it pierces your heart, but you don't actually want to commit yourself to that. When people were persecuting Jesus, he was under the same thing because he was saying, I am one with God. If you don't believe me, here, I'll turn the water into wine. Can you do that? No. And that's because I am God. I have that ability. And I am proclaiming myself to you. Because of that, Jesus, whenever he, is, whenever he was resurrected, he sits at the right hand of the Father and all judgment will go through him because of the price that he paid on the cross. 
If you don't really understand the gospel, the way that that lays itself out is Jesus came to take on form of man so that he would be an appropriate once and for all sacrifice for all sin that's ever going to be committed. The thing that so pierced my heart whenever I was 17, I was sitting in a youth group of about 20 people. I got invited to church and what pierced my heart was the fact that I was told that Jesus died for me. I lived 17 years, maybe the first six I didn't know because I was just one to six, what do you know? But whenever I, whenever I came somewhat, whenever I realized that I was a sinner and I started to contemplate these things and I actually had heard kind of knit, you know, little pieces of the gospel here and there about a man came and his name was Jesus and according to the Catholic church and the cross down the street, Jesus was still on the cross. I understood some of those things, but I didn't understand the fact that Jesus, when he was on the cross, he knew of Jeremy Smith from Coleman, Texas. He knew all the sins that I was going to commit. And yet he went to the cross anyways. That's what was what pierced my heart. And when, whenever, whenever I walk through those pearly gates, whenever I, my time on this earth is done, I know that I'm going to see Jesus and he's going to say, I know you, well done, good and faithful servant. Because that is his right to be the ultimate judge of all humanity because he's the one who paid a price for you. As we keep going, one of the things that it says, if we add verse 22 and move it into verse 23, I'm going to read that again. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Whenever we recognize the authority of Jesus, what he proclaimed about himself, whenever he started in this, he's proclaiming, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the Son of God. He proclaims that that is truth. Whenever we accept that to be truth, we are honoring the Son, which is in honoring the Father, because they are one. If we look in the last verse here in verse 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Friends, I ask you to really consider this verse today. This word right here, believes, is given 98 times in this book alone. It is one of the major themes in this book, but I want to ask you this question. Do you really understand what that means to believe? Because it's not like my friends in Central America who just take on the good things about Jesus that that make them feel good. This word in the Greek actually means to entrust in, to put your faith in. It's not just to identify with. We have added ourselves to this list of just saying, I am a Christian. But then our life doesn't actually live up to that. Now, my hermeneutics professor talked to me about something once when we were in class, and that was about this process that we have while we're here on earth, and this is this process of sanctification. I gave my life to Christ June 17, 1997. And my life has been up and down since then, but it's been a progress upwards because I've learned more and more about who the Father is. Friends, I ask you to consider this today. Whenever it says in this verse, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. When you put your faith in the authority of Christ, that is more than just a simple identification with who Jesus was. One of the things that I see overwhelmingly in this passage is the love that the Father had for the Son. Now, many of you guys know, uh, four months ago, my wife and I had a little boy. Um, he's four months old. His name is Whitman. This is the portion of the service that I won't be able to get through because I'll start crying. But 
Um, Whitman is, has been just an absolute joy. We call him Whit, by the way. Um, but I, I grew up with, I was raised by my dad. I was raised by a father. My mother was pretty much out of the picture, and I was raised by a dad who made mistakes, but ultimately my dad loved me. And I had an earthly father who, who made a lot of sacrifices for me. And I, I have taken that concept to the scripture ever since of, well, it says that the father loves me, but what does that really mean? The only fatherly love that I know is the love that I have for my father. Well, last week, I was sitting at the back of the church, and uh, we, Ben, who was leading worship for us and did a phenomenal job, was leading the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I, I'm a worship leader. My appropriate audience is the preschool, because that's about my level. Um, but these, I have a list of songs that I just don't touch, because I know I won't be able to get through them. And last week as we were singing that song, I was at the very back because he was getting a little fussy and, and I was holding him and I was thinking to myself, I love this little boy so much. How much more does the Father love us? Friends, I ask you to consider today, if you're sitting here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, can I ask you why? What is it that's stopping you? Because I promise if you would look at the scriptures, he has proclaimed himself to us. I have been to Israel, I've studied the scripture, I've been taught with men who studied it way more than me, and I know that this is true. And I committed my life, I entrusted my life to the Lord whenever I was 17. And I have never looked back, it has been the most glorious process ever. But how much more does the Father love you? One of the things that I've been looking at as I study this passage was the unconditional love that the Father has for you. I really struggled with that. Even having a son, I love my son so much, but I wonder, is that unconditional? Whenever we look at the gospel, that is the true image of unconditional love because Jesus, knowing you, everything that you are ever going to commit that is contrary to what God desires for your life, Jesus knew, and yet he went to the cross anyways. Why can you not submit your life to that? For those of you that are here that love the Lord, you've dedicated your life, your business, your family, everything to living according to the scriptures by loving God and honoring the Father. God has commanded us in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. God commands you to be obedient to God's word. And then secondly, in John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as the Father loved you. You also are to love one another. If you don't know the Lord and you're here today, I would consider, I would ask you to consider why. What is it that's holding you back? If you're here today and you have committed your life to the Lord and you love him, then he is commanding us as a church, as a family, as individuals to love our neighbors and share the gospel with them. That may take time. That's okay. Listen to them. Get to know them. Invest in their lives. And when God opens that opportunity, love them by sharing, them, sharing with them the gospel. As we close this morning, I actually want to do something that I do with our youth group a lot. I'm a worship leader, and I've played a lot of music, and often I find myself just singing the song, just actually playing chords, and words are coming out of my mouth. So I actually, we're going to close this worship this morning with this song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. This song has three verses that's someone walking through the truth of the scriptures, and when they get to the end, just ultimate understanding of who God is. I pray that you would consider these words. I'm going to read them to you as the band comes up. And we're going to close with this song. So would you please listen to the words of this song with me? How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one 
bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice calling out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to looking into what Christ said about his own authority. He was sent from you. He did your will here and he ultimately took that to the cross and he paid the ultimate price for our sins. Lord, as I was studying for this, I came across something from from John Piper and he said that God's love is unconditional but it actually does require something and that is a response. Lord, I pray that as we're sitting here today that if we know you, Lord, that we would continually respond by saying, yes, Lord, I'm gonna follow you with everything I do. And Lord, if we're sitting here today and they're struggling with this truth and just holding back by not allowing themselves to receive that unconditional love that Christ has given, Lord, I pray that you would pierce their heart to know that this is truth. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.